Let us hear again God's word as we read in the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs. The very first verse of this book, we're going to read chapter 4, but the very first verse begins the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. So I would propose that the Song of Songs is a more appropriate title for it than the Song of Solomon. Solomon wrote it, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But that phrase, the Song of Songs, is what we call a Hebraism. It's a way of saying the song of all songs, uh, the most exquisite song, uh, the excellent song, uh, in a sense, the one and only song, the song of all songs. So, the Song of Songs, reading chapter 4. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking as the chapter opens. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Senir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake! O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Amen and amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word, and to his name shall be the glory. Now, brethren, as well we know, whilst the different books of scripture, we have 66 books, 
just one book, of course, at the end of the day. We must remember that the Bible is one book. It's not 66 books. It's one book, but it has 66 component parts, 39 that we call the Old Testament, 27 that we call the New Testament, but one book, God's book. And it is the case that whilst each of these 66 portions of Scripture might have varied purposes, more than one in different cases, yet it's worth, not least, to help us get familiar with Scripture, to try and find down, not in a forced way, but in a way that arises from a reading and a rereading and a, a rereading again of Scripture, <clears throat> trying to find down, perhaps uh, into a phrase, into a sentence, the one key theme of each book. Try doing that. As you're reading through the Scriptures, you, you read the book of Leviticus. Suppose somebody came up to you and said, now you're a, you're a Bible man, you're a Bible woman, you believe the Bible, don't you? Certainly do, you say. Well, I was having a look at this book of Leviticus. Couldn't make head or tail of it. What's it all about? Tell me in a sentence. Well, friends, what's the book of Leviticus all about in a sentence? Discuss that amongst yourselves at another time. But it's worth being able to answer, isn't it? I mean, you don't want to say I haven't got a clue, but they're not asking for an essay or a treatise. They're not asking you to recommend a commentary on it, though you might eventually be able to do that. But a sentence. Or who's this fellow Zephaniah that you keep on about? Who is he? Well, he's one of the prophets. Well, what's he got to say? Sentence on Zephaniah? Gospel of John, sentence. First letter to the Corinthians, sentence. Second letter of John, sentence. Book of Revelation, sentence. There is one. You could have several. And they'd all be true. Song of songs, sentence. I put it to you, dear ones, that the one sentence reason for the presence of the Song of Songs in the Bible and how thankful that we have it, and where would we be without it? The one-sentence summary of the Song of Songs, its central focus and theme is this, to set forth the remarkable mutual love that there is between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, or in the personal sense, between the Lord Jesus Christ and each believer. That's what it's all about. Don't take any other reason but that one, friends. It may teach other things. It does. But first and foremost, that's why we've got the Song of Songs, and that's why we're so thankful for it. The mutual love between Christ and the church, that's on the large scale, Christ and the believer. It's on the individual scale. And it is mutual. Christ's love for the church, for us, for you, for me. My, your, our, the church's return of love to Christ, remembering that we only love him because, what did he do? He first loved us.
And that's what it's all about. Sometimes in this book, and it's worth just mentioning as well, and I've said this many, many times, but it's worth saying again that Psalm 45, next time you read or sing, why not read it? Why not sing it? Next time you read or sing Psalm 45, think of Psalm 45, because it has the same theme as the song. Think of Psalm 45 as the song of songs in miniature. In miniature. That's what it is. That's the way to understand Psalm 45. And so, here we are in the song of songs. And as in any love song, and in any mutual confession of love, the one to the other, sometimes one person is speaking and confessing love. Sometimes the other person is speaking and confessing love. And sometimes two people who are in love, even just in in ordinary terms, here in human terms, courting couples, if that phrase still exists these days, engaged couples, married couples. Sometimes when two who are in love together, a man and a woman, a woman and a man, in love with one another, they're confessing love to one another and they find themselves, not because they're working to a script, but they find themselves automatically really, really saying similar things to one another. Similar things to one another. Their mutual confession of love, you know, comes across almost in the same words. And there's something of that in the song. And sometimes it's genuinely quite difficult and you have to work it out really at the end of the day from the old Hebrew. Who's speaking? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ speaking in love as a bridegroom to his bride? Or is it the church, the believer, speaking in love to the Lord Jesus Christ? Who's speaking? Is he speaking? Is she speaking? Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not obvious. Sometimes they both seem to be speaking at the same time in this manner that I just described. Two lovers using the same language and neither can get the word in fast enough. And that's how it is. In our version beforehand, the translators, and it is important to say that, it's the translators, it doesn't derive from the Hebrew Old Testament, the translators have inserted he's and she's and others, and uh, other things like that. You see that. By and large, they're helpful, but not necessarily always. And so I put it to you, that as we come to our text this evening, which is verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16 of the Song of Songs, this is the church speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ. You could take it as the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to and about and concerning the church, but I'm more inclined to take verse 16, notwithstanding where the he's and she's are put here. Remember their translator's insertions again. I'm inclined to take verse 16 as a prayer from the heart of the church. This is the church speaking, praying, This is the believer speaking, praying. Now here in chapter 4, the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks the bulk of the chapter, has been saying 
the most extravagant and ravishing things of his love towards us. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ saying to you and me, if we are Christians, you are beautiful, my love. That's the Lord Jesus Christ saying that to us. You are beautiful, my love. That's how he thinks about us. We don't feel very beautiful at all, do we? But he says to us, you are beautiful. And then uses all manner of rich Hebrew poetry to describe this in terms of uh, teeth and hair and eyes and lips and cheeks and necks and breasts and so on. Not the language that we regularly use now, but, but familiar language of its day. And then he says this in verse 7. He's already said you are beautiful, but there's more. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. My Christian brother, my Christian sister, which of you is inclined to stand up in the fellowship this evening? Don't try it. But which of you is inclined to stand up in the fellowship this evening and say of yourself to the rest of us, there is no flaw in me? Well, I'm not going to do it. Are you? We would rather, if we had to stand up at gunpoint and say something, uh, we would say there are a thousand flaws in me. And uh, we would as well that people didn't know half of them. But here's the Lord Jesus Christ who says, yes, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Because he looks upon us, even as we were thinking about this morning, as justified in God's sight, and being sanctified by the Spirit, and pressing on to glory. He sees his own beauty and his own loveliness in us. And so we are lovely to him, altogether beautiful to him, flawless to him even though we are no strangers to daily repentance and daily pleas for pardon and daily cries for mercy. How beautiful is your love, he says. He says we've captivated his heart. Do you think about that, dear ones, as one who has captivated the heart of Christ? We wouldn't dare think it were it not that he says so. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. And so he goes on and he describes us as a locked garden, a spring locked, a fountain sealed, and so on. It's always lovely in regular life to hear a bridegroom speaking well and highly and affectionately of his wife. And it's a wretched thing to hear a bridegroom speaking in any other terms. But here's the heavenly bridegroom speaking of us, his bride in these overflowing and glowing terms. After all of which, what does the bride do? What do you say in response to the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us like this? Well, warmed and encouraged, aroused and humbled, the church, the believer, blurts out 
the words of our text. Song 416, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. You see, the nub of the church's response here is to express, in the light of all this passionate confession of love from Christ towards us, the nub of the church's response is to express a desire for more and more of Christ's felt presence. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. But in order that we might have more and more of a felt sense of Christ's presence, in order that this can never be so, the bride, the believer, the church, asks for what is especially needed, and that is more and more of the felt and powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this really is what this verse is all about, the felt and powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. The only one who fits us to receive the Lord Jesus Christ in the first place and then ministers more and more of Christ to us, which is behind the words, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. And always remember this, just before we we get to to the divisions of, of the text and the message, always remember this, it's always timely to remember this, that although the Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity. And although thereby he could well draw attention to himself, there would be nothing improper about God the Holy Spirit drawing attention to God the Holy Spirit. But he chooses not to. He chooses rather to deflect all our attention, even though our dependence upon the Holy Spirit is mighty, Yet he himself chooses to deflect all the attention and all the focus onto the second person of the, Lord Je- of, the, of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus told his disciples, isn't it? In the upper room, when you say, I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit, another comforter, will come to you. He will glorify me, for he will take the things concerning me and show them to you. And so that's the Holy Spirit's great pleasure. It's the Holy Spirit's great work. Not to draw attention to himself, though well he could and well he might. But rather to draw attention for our benefit to the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, Song 416, the text, title, Our Great and Urgent Need of the Holy Spirit. Note these three things. Number one, the wind of heaven. The wind of heaven. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind blow upon my garden. Now this word wind, if we were sitting here with Hebrew Bibles in front of us, rather than English ones, this word wind does not appear in the Hebrew. If we were translating our Hebrew literally, it would just read, awake north, come south. But obviously, the word wind is clearly understood. Awake north means awake north wind. Come south means come south wind. That's the only way of making sense of it, isn't it? And so, quite properly, we supply in English translation the word wind. And that it's the Holy Spirit who is being addressed here. Uh, Well, of that there can be no doubt. You remember how the Holy Spirit is often likened in Scripture to the wind. 
we have this in Ezekiel 37. Then he said to me, God said to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Another word there too. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. We have the same language, remember, in the great regeneration or new birth discourse on the occasion in John 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and Jesus said to him, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And you remember just one more instance on the great day of Pentecost in the second of Acts. Uh, There they were all together in one place. And what happened? Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And it was a visitation of the Holy Spirit. Not the first visitation of the Holy Spirit ever. He was there from the beginning. But this mighty manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God. So, the Holy Spirit wind, wind the Holy Spirit. It's it's a regular reference and connection in Scripture. And it's a very suitable analogy. Why is it so? Well, think of it this way. Both the wind and the Spirit are powerful and unseen of themselves. As you look out of the window, it's it's a reasonably still evening. Just a little bit of movement. But if we went out, if we looked out and saw there were gales blowing and great blusteries and so on, I could say to you, look at the wind. But you can't see wind, can you? There's a jar of wind. Have a look at it. No, you can't put wind under the microscope. You can't see wind. But at the same time, you can see wind. All right, that's not a riddle. You can't see wind, but you can see wind. Well, how do you see wind when you can't see wind? Well, you see its effects. Even in the the slight motions there in the branches, that's the wind. And so I can say to you, look at the wind. And it's causing a gentle motion in the branches. And so it is, we say this carefully, of course, and with reverence, you can't literally see the Holy Spirit. Yet you can see the Holy Spirit. And you see him in his works, and not least in the lives of people and in his ministry in the church. Or again, both wind and spirit are refreshing and reviving. Both can be cooling and warming. Both can be fruitful and beneficial. The wind in the natural world and the Holy Spirit in spiritual things. Or just one third illustration of the analogy between the two. Both wind and spirit are absolutely necessary. The wind outside is necessary. For if everything becomes and remains completely motionless, dead calm, and lifeless, then disease can flourish, and the air can eventually turn unwholesome. While at the same time the Holy Spirit is necessary, for he is, remember one of his names in scripture, he is the spirit of life. And without his lively motions upon the Christian and upon the church, then our Christian's well-being and the, the church's spiritual life are in grave trouble. 
So I say to you, there's nothing strange, there's nothing unusual, nothing surprising in this likening of the, the, the Holy Spirit to the wind. But, but why, friends, here, why this particular distinction between the north wind and the south wind? Why not just awake wind, come wind? Why awake, O north wind? And why come, O south wind? What are north and south got to do with it? Well, again, think of the world that God has made. We've listened to many a weather forecast in our time, haven't we? Sometimes it's completely right, sometimes it's completely wrong, and sometimes it's a bit of this and a bit of that. You win some, you lose some. Occasionally you win some, you lose most with the weather forecast. But there we are. But we're familiar with the weather forecast as speaking about the north wind and the south wind. It's a proper, if I can get this word out through my teeth, meteorological way of speaking, isn't it? The north wind and the south wind. And, and those phrases, they describe where the prevailing wind is coming from, don't they? The north wind comes from the north and the south wind blows up from the south. And they are very different winds from one another. Just thinking of the natural world. They are very different from one another. The north wind is a sharp wind, a piercing wind, a biting wind, a, a shivering wind. There's that old rhyme, isn't there? The north wind doth blow and we shall have snow. I once heard the north wind described as a lazy wind. Why would you call it a lazy wind? Well, it doesn't go round you, it goes straight through you. That's the north wind. You know a north wind when there's one blowing. But then there's the south wind. Again, thinking of the natural world still. There's the south wind. And the south wind, in contrast to the north, it's a more balmy, gentle, warming, settling, softening and ripening wind. Yet both are needed at different times. Both come from God's treasuries and fulfill his word. And the precious and vital teaching of our text is that there is also a distinction in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whether upon the believer or upon the church, which corresponds to the distinction in the natural world between the north wind and the south wind. Think of it this way, if you will. There is the north wind of the Spirit, which is here bidden in this prayer of the believer, awake. Do you remember this word of Jesus in John 16? And when he, that's the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so you see, we learn from that that the north wind of the Spirit is a convicting wind, a convincing wind, a disturbing, smarting, exposing, awakening wind, a shaking to the very roots wind. But then there is the south wind. And for that, consider this from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, part of his <coughs> part of his prayer for the Christians there, uh, that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, uh, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, the, the, the Spirit of God there 
is this warming, refreshing, comforting, soothing, healing, reviving, ripening of the spiritual fruits wind. So there's the north wind and the south wind outside in the natural world. But more importantly for us as believers and the church, there's the north wind of the spirit and there's the south wind of the spirit. And again, we need them both at different times. And maybe there's even a deliberate distinction between the two verbs here. Awake to the more powerful north wind. Come to the more gentle south wind. We need both the north wind and the south wind of the spirit in order to be convicted and comforted, killed and made alive, wounded and healed, Humbled and lifted up, chastened and encouraged, brought into the wilderness, and then refreshed and revived at heavenly springs. And here's a lovely truth just before we leave this point, dear friends. Here's a lovely truth. While in nature you cannot have both the north wind and the south wind blowing upon you at the same time, in grace you can. Oh, how very much as individual Christians... And as the church of Christ, blood-bought, we need the wind of heaven. Then notice a second thing, please, from the text. And that is the fragrance of heaven. The fragrance of heaven. This passionate plea from the believer, from the church, to the Lord Jesus Christ in response to his amazing declarations of passionate love towards us. This plea is not selfishly motivated in any way. The ministry of the Spirit is sought here for the glory of Christ in his church and the glory of Christ in our lives. And so after the awake and the come, there is a third verb, blow. Blow upon my garden. With this effect, let its spices flow. The Lord Jesus Christ has just been describing his beloved bride as a garden, a garden locked, etc. A garden fountain. Between which two verses, 12 for a garden locked, 15 for a garden fountain, he has mentioned several choice and fragrant spices. You see them there. Henna, nard, saffron, calamus, cinnamon, frankincense, myrrh, aloes, all choice Spices, evidently in eastern lands, not least at the time when the Song of Songs was written, the sweet fragrance and perfume that that met a person when they entered in to some of these gardens would, would really hit you, and it would be exceedingly pleasant and fragrant and refreshing and and you can still experience that sometimes, can't you, in, in English gardens, particularly English country gardens at particular seasons of the years. The, the fragrance of, of the plants and the flowers and the shrubs and the trees and the blossoms hits you. And it, it is exquisite. And, and it, fills, it fills the air, the, the air with these lovely aromas. Well... The garden here in our text, remember Solomon was given by the Holy Spirit to write this book, as we said at the beginning, along with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and one of the Psalms. These are Solomon's writings, 
Holy Spirit's writings, but Solomon did the pen work. And the garden described here is a royal garden, which is a type of the church and a type of the believer, and speaks of Christ's fragrance in the church and Christ's aroma in the Christian, and that this is ever going to be so will depend upon the Holy Spirit. And so the longing here in the heart of the believer and the church is to be fragrant, fragrant with the fragrance of Christ. And so this further plea, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow, is a humble yet earnest request for more and more of the Lord Jesus Christ to be known among us, felt among us, desired among us, enjoyed among us, preached among us, fellowshipped among us, manifest among us, and not least formed in us. The implicit acknowledgement, dear ones, here is absolutely plain. Of ourselves and left to ourselves, we have no beauty of Christ. He is altogether lovely and exquisitely beautiful and without flaw. We left to and of ourselves are none of these things. We own up on that. We put hands up. We own up. Of ourselves, no burning heart for Christ. And even if we have it sometimes, some days, how quickly and easily we grow first lukewarm and then plain cold. Of ourselves, no, no energy for Christ. Our, our own strength, such as it is, is, is not worth speaking about. Of ourselves, no self-denial for Christ. We're thinking far too much of ourselves and how much is this going to cost me? What am I going to have to do? What burdens will it lay upon me? Of ourselves, no longing to see Christ, for we settle in far too readily to our, our present circumstances and present sights and views. And we're not thinking about uh, beholding the king in his beauty and seeing the land of far horizons, Isaiah thirty-three seventeen, beautiful verse. You and I cannot produce these things. A burning heart for Christ, energy for Christ, self-denial for Christ, longing to see Christ. We, we don't have them natively. And even as Christians, once we've been born of the Spirit and, and washed in the blood, we, we don't carry on day by day, moment by moment, do we? At what we might call, for want of a better phrase, peak performance, peak fitness. And to lo, we're under very serious, solemn and repeated commands and exhortations in Scripture to flee from that, to flee from this, to pursue that, and to, to lay hold of the other. We can't do it in our own strength and wisdom. We just can't. It's only as we cry out for the Holy Spirit's help and His strength and His enabling in a word, the Holy Spirit's grace, that we can ever make any progress in accomplishing anything in the Christian life and in church life. Isn't that so? The Holy Spirit quickens, you remember, and gives life. The flesh, the flesh profits nothing. And so, dear brethren, if spiritual fragrance is to be ours in terms of holiness, power, and fruitfulness for Christ... 
And if these things are not just to to lie dormant, then we need the north wind to awake and we need the south wind to come and we need the two of them together to blow upon the garden of our souls and the garden of our fellowships. Souls which belong to Christ. So fellowships which belong to Christ. For we are not our own. We are bought with a price. We need the north wind to awake. We need the south wind to come. We need them together to blow upon the garden. And that the spices that only the Holy Spirit can fan begin to blow out. Do you know we haven't heard from Matthew Henry all day? So let me give you two treats, one after the other. Matthew Henry, number one. The flowing forth of the spices of grace depends upon the gales of the Spirit. Closely followed by Matthew Henry, number two. God has promised to give us his Spirit, but he will for this be inquired of. And that, beloved, is what... The believers doing here, that's what the church is doing here, inquiring of Christ for this, inquiring of him to work his Holy Spirit in this way. The wind of heaven, the fragrance of heaven, and a closing word on the Lord of heaven, the Lord of heaven. Observe how our text ends. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. A deliberate request. That as a result of the continual and continuing ministry of the Holy Spirit as we have seen and described. The Lord Jesus Christ himself would come to us. And that he would ravish our souls. And make himself more precious to us. Than we have ever found him to be before. For as we've just said we are not our own. We belong to another. We are married to another Romans puts it. We are married to another even to our heavenly bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would each be, one by one, a soul in which Christ delights to dwell. And oh, that we would be, each of us in our fellowships, our church families, our local or gathered congregations, that we would be companies of his people in the midst of whom He is pleased to abide. That there would not be about us that which repels him or keeps him at a distance or causes him to withdraw, but all that he would come and all that coming he would abide, that he would stay, that he would remain. For the things in his garden which the Lord Jesus Christ finds inviting and attractive and not the weeds which grow there naturally, but the Christ-like graces that can only flow forth spiritually from the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. Have you ever thought of this? The number of hymns, it's a great theme in the Psalms, of course, but I'm thinking for this illustration of our different hymn books. Have you thought of this? The number of hymns that treat the work of the Holy Spirit really in the terms of our text 
not necessarily always using the very words of our text, but they are pleas for the Holy Spirit, prayers for the Holy Spirit, requests for the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you a string of them. Here's one. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Let thy bright beams arise. Another. Spirit of holiness, do thou dwell in this soul of mine. Another. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power. Another. Breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew. Another. O breath of life, come sweeping through us. Another. Descend from heaven, celestial dove, with flames of pure seraphic love, our ravished hearts inspire. Another. Come down, O love divine, seek thou this soul of mine, and visit it with thine own ardor glowing. Another. Come, Holy Ghost, all quickening fire, come and in me delight to rest. Do you want another? You're getting another. Come, Holy Spirit, God and Lord, let all thy graces be outpoured. And there's more. O Holy Ghost, thy people bless, who long to feel thy might. And we mustn't forget this one. Come, Holy Spirit, like a dove descending. Every one of those statements is from a different hymn. They're not from different verses of the same hymn. You see how this has occupied the hymn writers. Now we know that the hymns are uninspired. The Psalms are inspired by the Spirit of God. God wrote them. That is not so of what we have in the hymn book. But nonetheless, we value what's in the hymn book. And not least when it treats great matters like this. And so we love to read them. Great devotional aids, the hymn books. And then great assistances in public worship. We've sung some good hymns today, got one more to come. It'll be, surprise, surprise, about the Holy Spirit. But this is the great matter, you see. Praying for the Holy Spirit, pleading with the Holy Spirit, for an acknowledgement that that, uh, we are nothing, but, but God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is everything. Because in our lifetime we have had maybe to contend with much wrong teaching, about the Holy Spirit. We can face the very real danger as Christians and churches of underdoing and undervaluing and shying away from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's a great error on our parts. So it is. The truth is that so long as we possess right teaching about the Holy Spirit, right teaching we can never be in danger of overdoing his work because it is so rich and manifold. Or that we could not be wells without water or lamps without oil, but that we would be those who not only need but possess and experience the fanning breezes of the Holy Spirit. Oh, for the mighty gales of the Holy Spirit. Are we praying for this in our private prayers? Are we praying for this in family worship? Are we praying for this in the prayer meeting? Are we praying for the Holy Spirit, pleading with the Holy Spirit? Will you on Thursday at your prayer meeting, is it Thursday, was it on Thursday? I don't want to gather you on the wrong night and you find you're the only one there. But on, on, on Thursday night, will you be pleading Song 416 in the prayer meeting? Or if not that verse, the sort of things that we've been praying for. Oh, this is what we need, dear ones. This is what we need. Hence, the title of the message. You haven't forgotten it, have you? Our great and urgent need of the Holy Spirit. 
Our need of the Holy Spirit, it's as great as it is urgent, and it's as urgent as it is great. The Holy Spirit alone can put us into a more fit condition to entertain our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit alone can usher in for us times and seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit alone can grant to us heaven-anointed lives and testimonies and ministries. The Holy Spirit alone can cause the beauty of Jesus to rest, to be seen on us and in us and the, and the favor of God to rest upon us. The Holy Spirit alone can reform us and refresh us and revive us. Isaac Watts had a, has a hymn, not regularly found in hymn books, but it pops up here and there if you uh, look far enough. It's very much a Song of Songs, chapter 4 hymn. <coughs> Let me just run through it with you. Christ has a garden walled around, a paradise of fruitful ground, chosen by love and fenced by grace from out the world's wild wilderness. Like trees of spice, his servants stand there planted by his mighty hand, by Eden's gracious streams that flow to feed their beauty where they grow. Awake, O wind of heaven, and bear their sweetest perfume through the air. Stir up, O south, the boughs that bloom till the beloved master come, that he may come and linger yet among the trees that he has set, that he may evermore be seen to walk amid the springing green. And it just remains to be said, dear ones, doesn't it? How careful we need to be in the light of all this. Not to quench the spirit. Not to grieve the spirit. Not to resist the spirit. Rather how exercised we need to be. One by one. And all together as the favoured people of God. How exercised we need to be. To plead with him to visit us. And to bless us. Pleading even as we do so. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Amen.